This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 24, with Art Stryber. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we bring you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. Today's amazing guest is the uber-talented and highly respected portrait photographer, Art Stryber. Art photographs a huge range of subjects, including every celebrity that you probably know and for the biggest magazines out there. Magazines like Vanity Fair, GQ, Entertainment Weekly, Fast Company, just to name a few. Many iconic images that you've probably seen and recognized were concepted and created by him. If you want to check out his website and his work while you're listening to this podcast, go over to his website, artstriber.com. That's A-R-T-S-T-R-E-I-B-E-R.com. And you'll get a flavor for what he does. He's a very seasoned photographer with a lot of knowledge to share. So this episode is going to be a bit more geared towards my fellow photographers with more practical nuggets in the photography realm. But I believe anyone in the creative entrepreneur space will find a lot of value from Art's interview. Art is a very kind and warm human, which I believe leads him to get the rapport that he does with his subjects and allows him to create the images that he does. He loves to share what he's learned along the way and build the photography community, which is also a very rare thing in this day and age. So much, in fact, that we may do a part two, so stay tuned. One other thing I love about Art is that he's created a really great work-family-life balance. Also a very rare thing these days. I left the interview feeling very inspired and some great ahas that I can take and directly apply to my own photography business. And I'm sure you'll find the same. So let's jump in. So today we got Art Stryber in his office today, a little office visit. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming by. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. So let's just get, get started and kind of give us a background of how you got into photography, um, kind of the, the stuff that you love to shoot and that you're kind of known for shooting. Uh, wow. Well, well, I'll try and give you the abbreviated version. When I was in uh, kind of elementary school, early junior high, I was experimenting with my father's Nikon F, and my grandfather was a very, very advanced amateur who had every conceivable piece of gear in his own darkroom. Mm. And when I was in eighth grade, my grandfather sold me and my brother Paul a Canon AE-1 for $5 and threw in a lens for another $2, which was an incredible deal at the time. And... uh we started shooting Tri-X and at school and uh, developing the film in his darkroom and proofing it and making prints. And then I took the prints to the newspaper and the yearbook and started shooting for the newspaper and the yearbook in high school. And then in 11th and 12th grades, I was the photography editor of the uh, high school newspaper and the yearbook. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when I got to college, I marched straight into the uh, school paper, the Stanford Daily, and said, where do I start shooting? And so I started shooting for them. And um, in my junior and senior year in college, I was the photography editor of the school paper. And there wasn't a photojournalism major. There was kind of a photography major or minor in the art department. So it was a lot of just self-taught experimentation, um, figuring it out on my own. And I'm still kind of doing that. And um, then my summer of my junior year, I did an internship at Life Magazine in New York. Mm. And the summer after my senior year, I did an internship at the Riverside Press Enterprise newspaper in Riverside. And then after that, did a traineeship at the LA Times. Again, thinking I was going to be in newspapers. And um, eventually started freelancing for uh, Women's Wear Daily and W Magazine, working at the small camera store in Pacific Palisades where I had worked during the summers during high school. And um, and then Women's Wear Daily and W uh, needed a staff photographer. Mm-hmm. And the guy they wanted for the job wanted too much money. So they offered me the job in 1987. And so I was now on staff at Women's Wear Daily and W, and they had a men's magazine called M and a teen magazine called Scene. And I was the staff photographer in L.A., so I had to shoot portraits and parties and still lifes and events and travel and food and interiors. I had to shoot everything that came down the pike. So I was learning literally on Mm. the job and doing all the things you're not supposed to do, like buy a new piece of gear and use it that day, as opposed to (laughs) um, experimenting with it and testing it and seeing seeing how it works. I had a best friend from preschool who was at Art Center and whenever there was some new kind of technical challenge, like, okay, I have to shoot food, I would call up my friend Cam and say, how do you shoot food? And he'd say, put the light in the back. And I'd go, awesome, thanks. So I was literally learning on the job. Um, And then um, in 1989, I had just gotten engaged. My fiance, who is now my wife, I had um, met her really at Riverside and she is the one who really got me, introduced me to Women's Wear Daily and W. She and I were now on staff there together. We had just gotten engaged, and they called us and said, how would you guys like to run the Milan Bureau? And we said, well, um, we've never been to Milan. And they said, well, why don't you go check it out and uh, see what you think? So we hung up the phone and kind of knew we had no choice. We had to go. Yeah. So we went and checked out Milan. And then in October of 1989, flew to Milan and I think that was a Thursday we flew and then on Sunday I'm shooting runway fashion in Italy and I had never shot runway fashion I had shot runway fashion in LA but never in Milan and this is again this is 1989 there's no uh, autofocus there's no digital there's no cell phones there's no nothing so um the same I did what I'd always done which is called somebody who knew how to do it and said mm-hmm. how do you do this and he said uh 300 millimeter on a monopod in the back, uh, Ectochrome 1600. You might need to rate it a little bit faster than that and uh, follow focus. Good luck. Yeah. So now my uh, fiance slash wife and I were in Milan for four years shooting fashion, portraits, still life, parties, interiors, 
travel and I was doing the exact same thing, only it was now in Italy. <laughs> so cut to um, 1993. We've done it for four years. We moved back to L.A. It's now 20 and a half years ago. And I showed up uh, in New York with a portrait portfolio, a men's fashion portfolio, a women's fashion portfolio, a reportage portfolio, and a travel portfolio. And I was, my training was a staff photographer. My training was, tell me what the assignment is and I'll go do it. I'll just figure out how to get it done. So that was kind of my workflow, I would say, probably for the last uh, 20 years. And I'm kind of still, I still kind of think that way. Basically that my, my workflow is, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? Mm. And as a result, I've gotten asked to do a lot of seemingly impossible shoots. Yeah. And I have a reputation as a problem solver, which I kind of really, I've embraced and I enjoy. Yeah. And so I've been trying to develop an aesthetic um, while tackling just about every genre of photography. And the thing is, is for me, every genre has informed every other genre. Shooting interiors has informed my portraiture, and shooting portraits has in, informed shooting interiors, and um, shooting reportage has inf uh, influenced the way I shoot portraiture. And and I, I'm a big believer in shooting across genres and learning from genre to genre to genre. So that's a very long answer to um, <laughs> how did you get here and. Uh, um, the answer to the, the answer to your second question, I, I love it all. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I mean, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time and I, I love you, sh you know, I feel like what you're most known for is shooting celebrity portraits at this point and you do really beautiful work and beautiful concepting and from, from what I've seen. So what how did you get to that that place of really getting known for that is that something that you really love being known for um I, I like being known as a portrait photographer i think there's a a little bit of um a uh a stigma attached with celebrity portrait mm. for or celebrity yeah. photographer uh and it could be um you know, my kids in elementary school being asked if their dad's a paparazzi to who <laughs> right um to this idea that if you're a celebrity photographer, that you are very uh, needy and uh, require a hot catered lunch and a masseuse on set and a private jet, um, none of which is the case for me. So I try not to use the celebrity thing. I just want to be known as a portrait photographer, but because of the kinds of people that I end up photographing, yeah, it kind of can't be helped. So honestly... I've been working in Los Angeles and and other cities, but based in Los Angeles for the last 20 and a half years. Mm. And if you look at the history of celebrity photography for the last 20 and a half years, uh, it's done nothing but grow. Um, and uh, and I, I've kind of grown with it, mm. meaning, um, you know, Entertainment Weekly is maybe 25 years old. You know, The Hollywood Reporter is four or five years old um you know vanity fair is certainly the the um the leading example of high-end celebrity photography you know rolling stone used to just kind of be music and is now music and celebrity right. so um and uh there are more television 
channels than ever before, and this city is largely responsible for creating yeah. all that. <laughs> I guess it kind of falls it, content. It's, it's evolved. Into so that. if we look at my tear sheet notebooks, you know, I think we'll see like just. Um, I think I started really with shooting like for People and for InStyle magazine, and that led to Entertainment Weekly, and it led to Esquire, and it led to The Hollywood Reporter, and you know I've been contributing to Vanity Fair for almost all of those twenty years on and off, wow. and um, just by virtue of being here, I kind of fell into celebrity. Portraiture. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I mean it, it. It definitely is a great. It's better to be known as a as a portrait photographer, and you know, living here, you just kind of the nature. It's, it seems like it's the nature of the beast. A little bit, yeah. It can be. Sense. It absolutely can be. Um, yeah, I mean, but regardless, it's the work is your work is great across the board, and you can see where your background shines through and how it's informed. So going back to like the history where you know what would you say are some monumental moments that have kind of shaped where you've the like your character and and your where you're at today wow um well i i'd really i think i have to one of <clears throat> i'd have to go back and look at one of the the pivotal shoots was the CBS Mondo project that we did in 2003, 2004, 2005. Mm. Um, and I honestly, it was, I kind of fell into it, I think. And for three years, twice a year, we were really fortunate to do these massive projects um, during which CBS would take like a weekend and take over, um, I don't know, three, four, five sound stages at... Uh, the lot in Hollywood, or I'd have to think long and hard about where we did these things, but they would bring all of their on-air talent, all their primetime talent, um, returning shows in kind of January, February, and new shows in about June or July, and we built um, one or two sets for every single show. And we were shooting portraits and uh, duets or a big cast on individualized sets that were all different, like the interior of a building or a snowy um, park scene or um, the inside of the Tunnel of Love or um, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks recreation with the cast of CSI. Um, it, it was insane. And um, it was... a two days of building and two days of lighting and two or three days of shooting with literally 14, 15, 16 assistants. It wow. was, yeah, it was out of control. Um, and like I said, we did that twice, 2003, 2004, twice a year, 2003, 2004, 2005, starting with Chrome and uh, then moving into Neg. And then finally, that was my first digital shoot was one of those CBS Mondos. So it really trained me in kind of big sets. It trained me with big productions. It trained me. There's like, you know, celebrity after celebrity after celebrity after celebrity. Uh, great concept training, running, you know, a massive set with all yeah. of these crew, 
all, uh, you know, all of, um, uh, you know, an enormous crew. Um, so I would really say that that was a, that that was a pivotal project. Uh, other pivotal projects would have to be the Vanity Fair cover of Justin Bieber, which was, I think, I don't know what year it is anymore, but I think that was 2011. And the Paramount 100 shoot certainly yeah. was uh, pivotal. Um, and there have been, and the 40-Year-Old Virgin movie poster was pivotal. So yeah. I'd, I'd really have to look back... Um, the New York Magazine cover of Neil Patrick Harris putting on lipstick yeah. was a pivotal shoot. So there have been these, these, um, the these way stations along the yeah. road or these peaks or whatever analogy you like to use that really pushed me, challenged me, or took me. And I hate to use this term to the next level or another mm. level. So pivotal for you in taking you to the next level. Yeah, or changing the public perception or pushing me creatively or pushing me uh, production-wise. They were pivotal in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, so going into these pivotal shoots, you know, it's probably a big stretch. Like, what, what emotions are you feeling going into these shoots? I mean, you know, we all deal with, like, this, like, almost sometimes fears or anything. Yep. Um, I remember years ago, and I haven't had one until like two nights ago, um, those like dreams the night before that uh, like the shoot's going wrong. Mm. And there was a time way back when, and we still have these adjustments that we have to make, but there was a time where like the gear we don't have the right gear or the cable breaks or, you know, whatever it is. So there, mm. there's that, there's that anxiety. That anxiety for me is really kind of gone. Mm. And I do have a little pre-production anxiety, but the minute I can see the location, I've started to be able to see the shots mm. in my head. Like when a magazine calls or a client calls and says, hey, we want this and this and this. After 20 years of experience and not just with my shoots, but looking at imagery, I can kind of see the shot in my head, yeah, which is incredibly helpful, as you can imagine, or see like an idea of the shot in my yeah. head. So, um, the w one of the things that I've been able to do and been able to train myself to do is to just take the project and break it up into smaller pieces, so it doesn't seem as overwhelming. And that, there's that old that old joke, how do you eat an elephant? Mm. And the answer is one bite at a time. Right. So I just have to take it one piece at a time and um, break it down and solve each of those things piecemeal. Um, so there's the kind of the problem solving pre-production and then there's the creative, um, literally a left brain, right brain approach to a big shoot. Wow. Um, and that's, that's the way I deal with it. Like, okay, how are we going to get ourselves production wise to a place where we can be creative, yeah. where we can like, where we can, um, not only get the shot that the client wants and that I want, but get a shot that we didn't expect to get. Mm. So what would you say? I guess that takes us into like a space of what's kind of your creative process on a shoot? I know that there's, you know, ad shoots are completely different editorial yep. and editorial. You get a lot more creative freedom. Yes. Sometimes you have to bring ideas to the table. Yes, you do. 
So Maybe. how does how does that process work for you? Um, well, all kinds of different. Let's just talk about editorial. It, it can work any number of ways. Um, but I have I have gotten on the phone with uh, a magazine photo editor who says, "Hey, can you shoot X Y Z on uh, next Tuesday?" And I say, uh, "Yeah, yeah, I'm free next Tuesday. That sounds awesome." And then the next question is, um, "Do you have any ideas?" And I'll say, um, you just called me, so I'm, you know, give me 24 hours and let me think about it. So what I want to know right out of the gate is why are we taking this person's picture? What is this about? You know, what's the story? You know, because a picture is worth a thousand words. What are those 1000 words? What are we trying to say? Neil Patrick Harris, we are trying to say the story is that in spite of his homosexuality, in spite of it, he is a leading man in a leading plays a hetero guy on TV. He is a Broadway actor. He is a um, an advertising spokesperson, and um, uh, he does comedy and he does um, drama. And his career has not been hurt. These are air quotes by his being out. Oh, okay. So that's the story. Okay, how am I going to illustrate that concept? And how am I going to illustrate that idea in a really smart, sophisticated, interesting way that maybe is like a second read or a tertiary read, you know, so you're not just being hit over the head. Mm-hmm. Um, and some kind of simple, iconic way. Yeah. So we had um, two primary approaches. One was that he is walking a tightrope. So we literally got him to walk a tightrope. And it mm-hmm. turns out, that he is an aerialist, which is the word for tightrope walkers that I didn't know. <laughs> so I do homework. I do homework. Like, why are we shooting this person? What is this person about? How do we, how do we say it again in a smart, subtle, sophisticated, direct, iconic way? How do we tell the story? Because if you pick up a magazine, I pick up a magazine and you're leafing through it, you stop for th- one of three reasons. Either the photograph has just drawn you in or two the word sex is in the headline or three this subject directly resonates with you for some reason Hmm. like you're really into this subject or this group or this restaurant or this concept Mm -hmm. that's it you're running through a magazine oh look at that oh what's this about the picture is the thing that grabs you and throws you into the story or the word sex which is why it's on the front cover of Cosmo at least two or three times every month. <laughs> um, so the photography carries a lot of responsibility. Mm. It's our job as magazine photographers, commercial photographers, um, entertainment photographers, to grab the viewer and draw them in, especially now in a culture that is phenomenally oversaturated with imagery what makes you stop and say wow that is cool i should read that i should see that i should watch that i should tune in to that show or go see that movie or you know whatever it is Um, you drive down the street i call it the pico boulevard test or the ventura boulevard test or the sunset strip test there are all kinds of movie posters um, billboards for movies and television shows. Mm-hmm. And 
which ones catch my eye? Which ones make me stop and say, oh my God, I wish I'd shot that. Or, um, wow, that looks phenomenal. I want to see it. You know, how smart and sophisticated are those um, visual messages? So back to magazines, I my approach is the same thing, which is, okay, if I picked up the magazine and was about to read a story about this person or thing, what image would compel me to stop? You know, oh, you know, let's do this or let's do this or how about this idea? And then um, once I get kind of into that idea ballpark, I have this really, really talented picture researcher in New York. And if I've got the time and the budget, I will call her up and say, send me everything you've got or everything you can find with, you know, feasts and banquets or women and horses or uh, irreverent guys. Hmm. And I don't know if you saw all of the notebooks in the other room, but it's there must be, I don't know now, two or 300 image reference notebooks yeah. in there. So there's image reference. Uh, it could be, I really, I, I, you know, her sensibility is imagery from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, and, um, but mostly kind of 40s, 50s, 60s. And, um, uh, and then, you know, we'll look at classical paintings for inspiration. You know, we're looking for, for inspiration. So I am a big, big, um, consumer of pop culture and media. I want to know what's been done and what's out there. I will immediately do an internet search, um, so I do my homework. It's yeah. really about homework. Definitely. So when you're doing this homework and you've got all these these images and you do, you've done your research, how do you compile uh, something? How do you find something that hasn't been done before? <laughs> <laughs> um, there are very few things that haven't been done before. Yeah. Um, and I will say, depending on the client, some clients hand me the keys to the car and say, you know, where are we going? And some clients come to me with the keys and the car and say, this is our concept. Mm. And then it's really up to me to say, um, oh my God, I love that. That's fantastic. Or I don't think that's really the most effective way to tell this story. Mm. Um, let's see, years ago, um, Entertainment Weekly came to me with the idea to take the American Idol finalists and jam them into a phone booth because nobody had really done that picture, you know, that classic fraternity from the 50s and 60s stuffing guys into a phone booth photo. Um, and they really wanted to get across that the American Idol finalists were dependent on the phone because you, had, you have to call mm. and say, uh, you know, and vote. Um, and I eventually brought them around to the American Idol, the American Idol finalists, as old school old school telephone operators with the big board and the headset and the plugs. So we we built mm. that set. So I have to really love the concept and or make the concept my own or make the concept something I'm proud of because at the end of the day, you and I open a magazine. Your name is on the photo. My name is on the photo. It doesn't say concept by the editors at this magazine. It doesn't say really mediocre idea by the editors at this magazine. It just says 
Art Striper or Nate Gonkin. And I look at the photo and you look at the photo and say, what was Art thinking? You know? Yeah. And and we don't know the backstory of how this picture came to be, why it's poorly printed or overly retouched or, you know, we have no idea. Um, and even though we experience it, even though we go through the concepting and go through the shooting and deal with the celebrity or port, uh, or subject um, and deal with their publicist or handler and then turn in the image and it gets chosen or cropped or whatever, and there's layers and layers and layers and layers of layers, by the time it gets into the magazine, it may be a, it might be a uh, very watered down version of what you yeah. turned in for whatever reason. So I take that very seriously. <laughs> My name is on this. <laughs> yeah. So I want to do everything I can to safeguard uh, the idea, the look, the printing, yeah, the so, whole thing. So it sounds like there's a lot of setting expectations of the client. In Absolutely. Of, yeah. What yeah. Kind of, what kind of advice would you have for setting expectations? <laughs> um, well, that's a really great question. And um, I'm I'm really transparent and really honest and say, this is really going to be tough. And I don't know if we can pull this off, but I'm going to try my best. And and But once I'm committed, then I'm going to make this the best possible version of this thing I can. Mm. And, which means that now I am managing their expectations and managing my crew and managing the... Um, wardrobe, hair, makeup, props, um, uh, the publicist, the talent, all in the name of getting us to this place of <clears throat> realizing this idea and collaborating with everybody mm. and getting them on board and leading them to this place. Yeah. So... It's um, it, it has to be understood in terms of collaboration, but at the same time, collaborating with people to get your idea or vision across. All the while, being during the collaboration process, being open to the possibility that your idea could be improved by one of those collaborators. Mm. And the only analogy I can come up with, and believe me, I've tried, is you are the quarterback and you are calling the play. But if your front line doesn't block and your wideouts don't run their pattern and your center doesn't snap the ball to you mm -hmm. and your running backs don't um, uh, hold on to the ball, you're not going to move the ball down the field, let alone score. Yeah. So <laughs> you are the quarterback, but you are relying on this team. And you're foolish mm. to think that you're playing tennis. You're not playing tennis. I mean, some people are out there playing tennis, but I'm playing football, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So in, in terms of like, what have you learned through the years of especially growing your sets get bigger and they get bigger like what has that taken from you to manage all these people i remember the very first shoot where i had more than two assistants it was a tommy hilfiger shoot uh, it was an editorial shoot shooting tommy hilfiger hello hilfiger for los angeles magazine mm. and i had like four assistants 
and we were out on the beach in Venice and I'm looking around and the assistants aren't doing anything. And I'm thinking, these are like really good assistants. What the hell's going on? And I realized, oh, oh, I have to tell them what to do. Mm. And that was incredibly informative. And I internalized that I have to tell people what to do. And then my best friend from college, who is a, a director and a video producer, he gave me a gift. And that gift was he came to one of my sets and he said, oh, you're a director. And I said, no, 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 I'm a photographer. And he said, no, you're a director. And I thought, oh, crap, right, mm. I'm a director. I My job is to inspire, move, push, uh, encourage, reward, and manage this team. So by the time I got to the um, uh, CBS Mondo shoot in 2003, and I had... 14, 15, 16 assistants, we had a meeting in that backyard and we put out the folding chairs and we set everybody up and we had like, I think Mexican food or whatever the hell it was. And I, we <laughs> diagrammed the room and I said, okay, you guys are in charge of this set. You three are a team. You three are a team. You three are a team. We're going to do this. We're going to, um, uh, create inside this sound stage. We've got eight sets going and we're going to build ourselves a little equipment room. You're in charge of the equipment room and just, um, again, bit off one tiny piece of the elephant at a time, yeah. but organized it and let it. Mm. So now on every shoot, I am, uh, before the shoot starts, taking the assistants through the day. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. And somebody might say, maybe we should use a beauty dish instead of a P50. And I'll say, oh, that's a great idea. Or, no, we have to use the beauty dish because I need this look or the P50's in use over there or whatever. Mm. So it's a it's a troop movement. It's a football game. It's a whatever you want to call it. And I, I, have, I had to learn how to scale it up and scale it down mm. because not every budget allows for that kind of tomfoolery you know so you know sometimes it's you know me and my digital tech and an assistant or me and my digital tech and uh elaine my first assistant and producer um and one assistant mm. so it, it has to scale up and scale down but every shoot demands a um a macro view and a micro view every shoot demands a big picture look and then a God is in the details um, approach. So that's how I deal. I'm firing on you know all of the production aspects and logistical aspects and the creative aspects so that we can get and the budgetary aspects so that, so that we can get um, the best possible results. Yeah, and then you got to deal with, manage the client as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other art yes it is <laughs> absolutely what's, yeah what's, it's a lot of management yeah and especially dealing with clients like what has been what has worked for you over the years and what have you learned managing clients um my life lesson is patience mm. phenomenal patience um and i'm still learning patience <laughs> um and 
the understanding that you and I are in the education business. Mm-hmm. We are educating our clients as to why it won't work, why it will work, how it could work better, what might be more effective. That's my favorite word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just don't think that's going to be as effective as if we do this because using effective is judgment neutral as opposed to saying, eh, that idea sucks. Um, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, judgment specific and negative. Um, I like to use the word effective. Like, you know, I just don't think that's going to be as effective as if we take this other approach. So that's huge. The that's word great. effective, which I have copywritten. I now own the word effective. <laughs> so I get like two cents every time somebody uses it. Um, so, uh, that patience, um, vocabulary, you know, how you talk to them is, is really, really huge and really understanding where they're coming from, you know, really having a lot of empathy for what they're going through and dealing with and just really putting yourself in their shoes, Mm. um, is hugely helpful, hugely helpful. Um, you and I are self-employed. Yeah. We know what it's like not to work, but our clients all work for some corporation, whether it's enormous and multinational or just national or local or, you know, whatever. And especially after the crash of 2009, 10, 11 mm-hmm. and 12 and a half or 11 and a half, 12, um, they are really concerned for their jobs. Yeah. You know, the media landscape is changing. And um, so it's really important for us to execute for them because they're tense <laughs> just in general. Um, because you just never know anymore. Um, whether or not the magazine is going to be around or the network is going to close the division or the movie the, or the, uh, motion picture studio is going to shrink or yeah. whatever. So empathy for your clients, patience with your clients, understanding that you're in the education business. Uh, is huge. Vocabulary is huge. A classic education uh, example is you're photographing the interior of a house in Malibu, and the interior is amazing, and the view is stunning, and the client says, I really want to see like the, the ocean, and I want to see everything in the room as well. Mm. And you say, okay, so um, here's the thing. The human brain is this phenomenal... Um, uh, machine that allows us to see a 12-stop dynamic range. You don't use all the technical terms, but the brain allows us to see and expose for what's in the room and what's outside the room simultaneously. Right now, you and I can expose for what's in the room, and that's probably, I'm going to say, four stops right now because that's open shade out there. Um, but the camera has to choose a value. And the camera has to say, I pick this or I pick that. So the truth is nowadays you can, and you could back in the day, bracket and expose for both. But, you know, back in those days, I'm shooting Chrome and 
you know, you had to kind of pick a value. <laughs> so you're in the education business and you're mm -hmm. trying to explain light and exposure and focus and yeah, all kinds of things that they're just not that well versed in. Got it. Got it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's heavy. That's a lot. <laughs> uh <-huh>. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, and that kind of like, I mean, just the, speaking of business, you know, in moving into the commerce side of things, you're very, you're very organized, very structured and you're, how did you build your business on, on the business side? Like what, how did that evolve for you? Uh, one step at a time. Again, um, I, uh, I have, uh, organizational, um, I have, I have a problem. I'm going to admit it. I'm, uh, I'm a double Virgo and I'm really, really, <laughs> I'm really organized that way. And I, I just can't, I, I just can't have it any other way. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, for me, it's fortunate. I have, I think I need a little bit more creativity and a little, a little less. Uh, I always get them confused, left brain, right brain. Um, uh, but I have this theory called the Van Gogh's ear theory, which is if you are, uh, an artist that is crazy enough to cut off his own ear, you probably need a studio manager. Um, <laughs> so either you're doing it. I mean, you're, you run a small business. Mm -hmm. you know, and you have to kind of treat it and organize it like a small business. Yeah. And if you can't, you mm -hmm. got to find somebody who can, whether it's your rep or your wife or your husband or your partner or your girlfriend or your mom or your brother or your father or your best friend or somebody to help you organize your business. So, mm -hmm. um, we have over the last 20 years put systems in place and the systems have grown or um, uh, evolved or left by the wayside. And, but we've gotten to this place where this office is predicated in the idea that you can find any piece of information in at least two places hmm. in under two minutes. Yeah. Wow. So that if somebody says, where is the blah, 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 you should be able to find it really quickly. Or who was the guy on the shoot who, boom, you've got it. Or when was the last time you worked for, have you ever photographed? Because these questions come flying at you all the time. Yeah. So to us, to me, I want to put a system in place that gets those questions answered quickly. Not only for our clients who don't have any time and have, have have exponentially less time than they did 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, but also for us just to make it easy for us to work very efficiently, which we really do. And when we don't work efficiently, if we hit some kind of a snag, mm -hmm. then we um, have a meeting and say, how could we make this smarter, faster, better? Mm -hmm. um, let me see if I can come up with one small example. Small example. Mm, okay, this is a really silly small example, but we, our office um, runs on a, a FileMaker database program. FileMaker is the name of the software. 
you can buy it off the shelf, but you have to customize it. Mm-hmm. And I've been working with a FileMaker expert named Scott Rose for the last, I don't even know anymore, 10 years. And our FileMaker database system is completely customized to our workflow, but it kind of makes sense for you know, all photographers at a certain level, but it's really tweaked for us. And um, recently we hit this, not really a snag, but we kind of realized that when a print order comes in, my retoucher won't and can't really do an accurate quote for the client until they get my notes. Mm. So, and that order won't come in maybe for a week or two or three or four or eight after the shoot. Mm. And when that order comes in and the client wants it on Thursday or a week from Tuesday, I need to do my notes for that order, like burn that down and remove that and Mm. make that green or, you know, whatever it is. And I might not be available to do those notes because I'm on a shoot or I'm on a plane or I'm at my kid's school or wherever. So it occurred to me that I should really do the notes when I'm doing my edit. So when I'm doing my edit of the files in DF Studio, which is Digital Fusion's online editing suite, which I highly recommend, we now have a tab in FileMaker, in the database, and as I'm editing, I can say, okay, for the setup where they're in the kitchen, remove the wallpaper and turn that green. And so now I've got these notes, which are now living in the database with that job so that when the order comes in, my studio manager, Jody, can grab those notes and throw them at the retoucher and they don't have to wait for me. So it's these little tiny tweaky things. Like right before you and I sat down, um, I grabbed two forms out of the file cabinet drawer. We just got back from job in Atlanta. And those forms are a tip uh, receipt or a tip invoice or a an accounting for tips and luggage carts hmm. so that I can sit down and say, okay, we tipped the bellman, we tipped at the airport, we tipped here and here and here and here, here are all the tips. And luggage carts, we had a luggage cart in LA and in Dallas and Atlanta, and that there's $5 a piece. So I have this formal, you know, uh, form piece of paper that is going to go into the invoice. Mm. So every time we've identified some place that could use some kind of formatting or a workflow or something, we have created it. Mm. and sometimes it's too much and we've done away with certain workflows and formats but there are systems in place for every normal workflow that we have Mm. there are systems in place and that's huge if you recognize that you are for every job you are using the same vendor to order equipment why not make a form that's blank? And I mean, it's got a listing for, you know, this many pro photo packs and this many pro photo heads and this many bi heads and this many C stands and sandbags and rollers. And you've got this blank form. And the minute 
the job happens. You're like, okay, do, 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 do. I need two of these, five of these, four of these. And you're now scanning it and faxing it or scanning it or faxing it and sending it to the equipment place. Mm -hmm. And they send it back to you and say, oh, that's going to be $2,000. Mm -hmm. Well, we did that like 15 years ago, but now it's in FileMaker. Mm -hmm. And in FileMaker, I can go in, fill out the gear rental equipment tab, mm -hmm. and FileMaker will make a PDF of that form, drop it into my email, and we can send it to Screaming Broccoli or Quixote or Smashbox yeah. or Milk or the place in Atlanta or the place in Dallas or San Francisco, <laughs> and they get this form that's broken down into camera gear, strobe gear, grip gear, hot lights, and expendables. Mm -hmm. A page for each. And that's our order. Oh, well, that's that makes sense. Yeah. We've created an order and sent it to them. So it's stuff like that. Mm. You know, stuff you do all the time that you need to systemize. That's yeah. those are just two that's great. tiny examples. Yeah, that's great. I, I mean, got a million of those <laughs> <laughs> examples. Yeah, which I mean, it's and it, how has that enabled your creative process and to like have all these systems in place? Well, it it frees me to spend more time on the creative because all of the nuts and bolts stuff is in place. Mm. Mm. Um, when all of the nuts and bolts, pre-production and production and post-production invoicing, retouching, when all of that stuff is kind of systemized, it allows me more time to just deal with the creative. Great. So it, it's, it's freeing. Yeah. It, I will say it's also, it's a burden because you're a slave to the systems, but it's, it's also freeing. That's great. That's great. And, you know, especially now in business, you know, we all through as creative entrepreneurs go, it's up and down. And yeah. as we were talking about earlier, yep. you like, you know, we know what it's like not to work. Yep. You know what it's like to work. Yep. How have you dealt with that? You know, especially the roller coaster and the, and the downtime. That is and... an awesome question. And the awesome answer is that, and I just told you before we sat down that I had a, I'd have to, we could look at the calendar, like two or three weeks where I didn't have any shoots mm -hmm. and you don't ever really see those coming, but what you have to train yourself to do is realize that those are gifts. Mm. They are a gift. They are not a burden until you hit like week three, week four, week five, <laughs> then it is definitely a burden. Um, and that burden, by the way, may not be immediate except on your psyche, but that burden could be a burden in 90 days when there's no income coming in from that two or three week period. So you kind of have to do that math yeah. as well. But more importantly, they are a gift. And the gift is you have to ask yourself, what am I supposed to be doing right now? Oh, I'm supposed to be reorganizing my gear. Oh, I should be redoing my website. I should be updating my portfolio. I should be cleaning out the garage. I should be spending more time with my daughters. Mm -hmm. I should actually call the plumber and get them to plumb the sewage line at the house <laughs> or the office. Oh, this is where I'm supposed to be meeting with my blah, blah, blah. Or, oh, I should probably get a physical. Or it's a gift. Yeah. And the minute 
that you change your outlook on having that kind of downtime and you realize that it's actually to your benefit mm. then when the next wave of craziness starts mm-hmm. you're ready yeah during that three week period of time it was a kind of cosmic collision in this office because my uh, first assistant and producer was out of the country my um, uh, studio manager was out for like uh, 10 days and my digital tech was with his wife in Peru so not only was there no work but if there had been work I would have been with kind of second stringers Um, but during that time we the uh, interns and I and the the person, the people that were subbing for my studio manager, we totally cleaned out the archive closet and the cleaned up the archive room and reorganized a portion of the garage, which has all kinds of archival stuff in it. We took out every single softbox and umbrella and mm. relabeled them and figured out a new way to make the gaff tape stick. And that, by the way, it's applying an iron. Um, and I cleaned off a couple of piles on my desk and I don't even, I think I went to the dentist. Um, definitely spent more time picking up my kids at school. So, yeah. Um, and so that when the craziness happens again, and it happened a little bit this week and it's certainly happening over the next two weeks, we're ready. Mm. So don't freak you know use it as an opportunity to market and reorganize yeah that's huge that's great huge a a really good example actually is um i had a two-week slow period in december of last year and i just sent i sent out like five emails to five different magazines that i hadn't worked for in a while that i admired and in january i ended up shooting for all five of them Wow. Because especially if you're in L.A., you have to remind New York magazines that you're here. And you have to figure out a really subtle marketing way to remind them that you're here without badgering them. And um, so when you have time on your hands, use it to your benefit. Got it. That's awesome. Great advice. Now, what happens when you get to Burden State? To the bird, the burden state, like where you don't work for longer than those mm. two or three weeks. You know, it's especially like people that are starting out. You, they're build, you're building, uh-huh. and so sometimes those gaps are. A lot, yes, a lot they are. Um, the answer is the same. The answer is um, continue to market, mm. uh, and continue to tweak your systems, and then. Go out and create new work for yourself. Mm. You know, it's that old adage, that old saw that success is luck when luck and opportunity meet or collide, or I think that's the adage. Anyway, um, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if we wanted to create new work, we shot film Mm -hmm. and we took the film to the lab. 
and then we waited for the film to be processed for a day or two. Then we got our proofs back, our chromes back, and then we had to do an edit with a grease pencil or slide pages. And then we had to make our selects, and then we had to put our uh, take our selects to the lab, and then we had to wait four days for a print. Then we go in and pick up the print, and the print would be too blue. Mm-hmm. And then we have to come back the following Tuesday and the print would be too green. And then we come back the following Thursday and the print was perfect and you had one print and you put it in your portfolio (laughs) and then you had to go to New York and show that new work. Yeah. Now you could go do a project tomorrow and depending on how your post-production workflow looks, you could have that new work on your website that day, the next day, or in two or three days. There is no excuse to not create new work, if I can use a double negative. Um, there's no reason not right. to. Um, all you have to do is identify that project and go for it. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you've got new work up on your site because we have become so accustomed, especially with the web, to um, expecting something new. Mm-hmm. So when you, the idea is that if you are plugged in and diligent and working hard, you shouldn't really ever hit week three, four, five, six, seven, or eight, because you're keeping yourself busy. And if you hit week two, I mean, you should be trying to come up with a new personal project every month. And the thing is, the consuming um, clients, the image consuming clients, doesn't matter to them what the project is. I don't know if you know um, Johnny Turgo, who's probably one of the top five assistants in the city of Los Angeles, but he just did this personal project um, out of his truck window where he mounted a laptop in his truck and he mounted a camera in the driver's passenger window and he mounted a P50 on the back and he'd pull up pull up to somebody on the sidewalk and take a picture and has this phenomenal um, uh, passenger side window, johnnyturgo.com passenger side window. Um, Sean Crawford former intern, working photo assistant, photographer, very talented, S-H-A-U-G-H-N, Crawford, just did a personal project about Slurpees. There is no wrong answer here. And what's interesting to me is that um, when people are giving advice to writers, writers are told, shoot, uh, sorry, write what you know, tell your story. Nobody says that to photographers, but they should because you might have some crazy extended um, ethnic family that you go, oh, yeah, my family. And you go, no, put up a seamless, Mm. have a barbecue at the next family reunion. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Or um, 15 years ago, a photographer in Hollywood named Lara Jo Reagan won the World Press Photographer of the Year Prize by doing a project of photographing every single person on her block went into every apartment and Mm. photographed everybody on her block. Wow. There's no wrong answer here. There's no project in, 
you know, I, I don't know where your listenership is, but let's just use the city of Los Angeles, the county of Los Angeles. There's like 9.9 million people here. Right. And how many stories and how many subcultures and how many, um, you know, areas of interest? Yeah. I mean, I think in the in Southern California, in the region, there are at least two or three dozen ethnic neighborhoods and communities from obviously the Vietnamese community in Orange County to the mm. Armenian community in Burbank to yeah. the um, Ethiopian community to the Russian community. I mean, yeah, I mean, oh, my God, you know, so um, and again, I'm just talking about, you know, mainly portraiture here, but there is nothing stopping you yeah. from being a cultural anthropologist. And if you have your um, kind of media sensors on, you will find a project that not only is attractive to you, but might be attractive to Los Angeles Magazine or Santa Barbara Magazine or mm. Orange Coast Magazine because they are not starved for content, but they need to put out a magazine every month. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite stories is years ago, and I've never went, I've never gone looking for this on the web, but Los Angeles Magazine ran this portrait series of waitresses that had been in their jobs for 30, 40, 50 years. Wow. And I looked at that and said, oh my God, that is brilliant. It's so simple. These women are so interesting looking. And I called the then photography editor and I said, I love this project. It's so awesome. Um, and she said, yeah, this woman, you know, brought it to us. I thought, oh, there's your answer right there. You go shoot this project and you actually act like a responsible photographer slash journalist name, age, contact information. You walk into Los Angeles magazine with this thing that's already done and it's relevant and mm. it's got some kind of news value to them or timing value or is just culturally interesting yeah it will get published mm. and the proof is the new york times sunday magazine every week has that little section in the back whose name i've forgotten yeah no that's great that's really great advice and i guess one more kind of topic to i want to like talk to you about before we wrap up here and, and i know that you're really into and believe in is is mentoring people mentoring other photographers and and passing that passing the torch or passing the information and, and growing other people what's your philosophy behind and mentorship and why do you do it wow well i gotta say i really appreciate the question um, and I appreciate the acknowledgement and I've never really been asked that question. It's just something I do and enjoy doing and I think is valuable. And, um, there's a couple of different answers. Um, one is that I got to be honest and say that a lot of my mentors were kind of ultimately disappointing, hmm. you know, or just let me down in some way, shape or form, or then actively discouraged me from pursuing a career in photography. Yeah. There were three major, major milestones where people that I really looked up to said, mm, no, no, um, uh, don't pursue a career in photography. 
And that made me even more determined, obviously, to <laughs> to do it. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, the the next is that I honestly I've never had a real mentor. So when I have found this, you know, information out or learn something about the way something works, I want to share it. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to share it with people who will appreciate and yeah. and um, and understand uh, its value. Um, and I'm a really big believer that um, that there is a lot of work out there still, mm-hmm. and that um, my uh, helping people get work or recommending people for work doesn't really take work away from me. And the mm. truth is, yes, it does take work away from me, you know, um, uh, because they, you know, the clients ask, have asked for clients will get turned on to somebody I've recommended and use them. And, and I figure that that just means that I need to pursue, you know, bigger and better stuff. Mm. Um, and, um, I really do enjoy the success of my former interns, my former assistants, the people I mentor. Um, and I feel like, like I've got these, I've got a lot of these answers and I feel compelled for some reason to share them. I don't feel like it's fair to me, uh, fair to, to, to anybody to just kind of like secretly hold on to, to these (laughs) answers, you know, sometimes to my detriment, but I gotta say that I've been doing it probably for I don't know maybe 14 years now 15 years now and I'm still working Mm. so my theory has kind of been borne out that I'm not really suffering in the long run I might be suffering in the short term and lose a job to a former assistant but I really don't it doesn't bother me I don't look at it that way yeah um I enjoy sharing I enjoy like even talking to you right now when you're ready to hear a certain piece of information, the light bulb goes off. Mm-hmm. And I love seeing the light bulb go off and having somebody go, oh, my God, right. Because I've, I've had those moments for me. Like, if I had had this conversation with you five years ago, you might not have been able to absorb the information the same way. Mm. And some of the stuff that you and I have talked about today, the light bulb and the connection might not be made for you for another five years mm. but maybe in a year or two or six months or whatever you're gonna go oh that's what striver was talking about yeah. and today we had um very talented photographer a friend of mine named justin coit in the office who's a former intern of mine and he wanted to come see the filemaker database program mm-hmm. and he said when i was an intern i went i looked at that system and thought why would i ever need this mm-hmm. and now i'm thinking to myself oh my god i can't i have to have this i can't live without it so yeah. th- that you know it's that another old adage about how you know you're not ready until you're ready exactly and you, d- you just don't know when you're going to be ready mm. so i'm still learning and i'm still just acquiring information and and i'm looking for insight and a better workflow and a better idea so I'm just hungry for it. Yeah. So when I find something, I just want to, like, share it. Yeah. Um, 
I, my wife and I moved back to L.A. when I was, well, 20 years ago. So let's do that math. I was 32. Mm. And I had been in Milan for four years. And I had not ever used a C-stand. 19, this is now 1993. Mm. I remember being in Valentino's Palazzo in Rome and putting up my light stand and my softbox <laughs> and thinking, God, I wish there was a way to just kind of go up and over. That would be so cool. Oh, well. And I'm, and then, so <laughs> I moved to LA and somebody turns me on to a C stand or I see one in rental or whatever. And I went, Oh, oh my God, look at this thing. It's like the right angle, 45 degrees. Oh my God, you can, there's an arm and and I like bought three of them and I took one to Joe Pliesi who's my one of my closest friends and Lisa O'Marin another one of my closest friends and I said you guys look at this thing and they were former photojournalists and you know kind of light stand people like me and they just it was like Christmas morning like, oh my god <laughs> and then I remember when I found the mini boom for the first time and I just thought Oh my God, I have died and gone to heaven. Look at this thing. It extends and you can put a weight here. And so I turned them onto it. So I've always just kind of been compelled to share. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I acknowledge your heart in giving back to the community and giving back to people, giving back to me. I, I mean, I appreciate your advice and, and I've learned so much from our interactions together. And I mean, in the spirit of, of giving back and inspiring people, like you've inspired me, one of the questions I love to ask all my guests is what does it mean to live inspiration? To live inspiration? Yeah. How do you mean? I mean, be, you know, in the, in the realm of like inspiring other people, giving back to other people. Um, what does that, just, what does that mean well, to you? Well, I mean, you can't, I, I have to be honest and say it's a great feeling, obviously, to, give back mm -hmm. it's a it's a great feeling to see somebody succeed because of some idea or introduction or insight or piece of wisdom or piece of gear and have them come back to you and say oh my god thank you so much i mean that's a great it's a great feeling mm -hmm. but and i don't you know if i'm if i'm being really honest with myself i I don't know whether that accounts for, you know, it's, it's not 50% of the reason I do it. Mm -hmm. It's not 40. I, I don't know. I think maybe it's like, you know, 20%, 10%. Yeah. Like I just love, I do love the appreciation. No mm -hmm. question about it. But I really, um, I, I enjoy it just because I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's the, thoughtful thing to do i think it's the paying it forward thing to do i think it's the considerate thing to do yeah you know i think it's um uh you know um if i can help somebody figure out or explain to somebody something it took me a while to figure out and now it's just plain as day mm -hmm. i want to i want to do it yeah. And then the gift is that you are compelled to do this podcast. Mm -hmm. And the gift is that my former assistants are hiring my other former assistants. Mm -hmm. And my gift is that my former assistants are sharing their gear, sharing their knowledge, or yeah. that 
the the thing is that artists and photographers are kind of islands under themselves, yeah. you know. And yes, there are artistic communities, and and um, uh, over the years there have been attempts at these kind of utopian communal uh, lofts, or what's the one downtown that Matthew Young turned us all on to? Um, uh, I, I, I'm, oh, he does the music thing. I'm totally blanking. Well, there's the music thing, but th- when he did that first 20 by 20, it was downtown mm. at a space where, you know, different artists come together. And there, and this is just kind of my way of, of bringing people together in a profession that doesn't really encourage us to come together. Not only is it competitive and not only do we have our own vision, but when we were shooting film, we all had to go to the lab and we would run into each other and we would see on the back wall all of the different little slots and go, oh, what's he shooting? And oh, what's she shooting? And what are they doing? And we had this kind of interaction. But post-digital, we are at home with our laptop by ourselves. And we and young photographers and assistants, people starting out, think that I'm just supposed to be here on my laptop with my Canon 5D Mark III and figure this all out by my by myself. Yeah. And we don't, you don't have to. We don't have to. You know, we can yeah. band together and, um, like uh, that thing that Joe Pugliese and Matthew Young do, where they get photographers and assistants together every three months at a bar in Hollywood, yeah. um, or you know Matthew Young's attempts at community building, or your attempt to reach a number of people and share mm-hmm. um with a podcast that's that's huge yeah you know yeah um and the only way that you can really kind of buy into that is to realize that you're not right for every single job mm-hmm. i'm not right for every single job now are there a half a dozen or a dozen people who are right for the job that I would be competing with for the job? Yes. And I think my other learning curve is that over the last five years, I have lost a phenomenal number of jobs. Last month, I lost five jobs in like the span of, I don't know, three days. (laughs) And I'm still here. And I'm still shooting and it's a bummer, but you just have to live to fight another day because this is a marathon, not a sprint. And I've been really honored to lose jobs to Annie, Bruce, Mark, Norman, the, the, you know, the, the biggest, the big job I just lost was to Albert Watson, you know, and just to be in that company is huge. Amazing. You know, it's a, it's huge. Yeah. Um, and that would have been a really nice paycheck. But, <laughs> you know, for whatever reason, I wasn't the right guy for the job. So I have to figure out how do I make myself yeah. the right guy for the job? You know, wh- how can I improve or demonstrate or shoot a new project that shows that I could do it? Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes you're just never going to get that job because the, the creative people at the agency really just want to work with Albert Watson. Yeah. And you go, eh, okay. Live to fight another day. You know? <laughs> it's a marathon, not a sprint. Definitely. Well, amazing words of wisdom. I, f- I feel like I could ask you so many more questions, but for the <laughs> well, second you know time. What? 
uh, if this thing gets um, uh, a you know a a number of uh, I don't know what uh, your how you measure your tune in rate or your likes, you know we can certainly do it again. Yeah, I mean a part two would be awesome. Absolutely. So where can we find you online? See your work? Connect with you <laughs> on the social media? <laughs> you know what? Another great question, um, especially in this day and age. I am artstriver.com. I have a Facebook fan page, and I'm Instagram. Um, I'm AS Pictures on Instagram. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I think uh, I can't help myself. I'm going to answer that question. Um, when I um, when I lecture and I talk about marketing, I I I come right out and say that the web is king. Mm-hmm. No question about it. The web is king. Your portfolio is number two. The web is king. Hmm. And our intern, Josh, who is, I believe, 22, today at his farewell lunch with my studio manager, he was telling us about how he gets a phenomenal amount of work out of his Instagram feed. Hmm. And so... On Monday, I was lecturing in Palm Springs to a bunch of people whose average age was probably 30, 35, who were trying to figure out how to kind of approach social media. And then there's the intern, the 22-year-old, who is trying to figure out how to approach the web. He's just coming at it from social media. So my um, uh, current... Um, yell it from the rooftops is you need to be on every platform Mm. and not every platform. You really need to be kind of on Instagram, Facebook and the web, but Mm. you certainly have to be on the web. And, um, because I love these analogies, I'm just going to throw them at you, even though we're already done. Um, the web is king because right now you, you have a portfolio, right? Mm -hmm. Do you know where it is? Yeah. Okay. Who's looking at it right now? Um, nobody. nobody. Right. It's sitting somewhere. Yeah. Okay. And when you send that portfolio out next week, you're going to be sending it to whomever. And you're going to know that the people at wherever are going to be looking at it that day. Your website could be being viewed right now mm. or right now. Yeah. Or now or now <laughs> or at two in the morning. Or right now. Yeah. And so your website has to be dialed in and nail shut 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. Your website is your living room window with the lights on and the drapes open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So mm-hmm. you better look great. You better not be in your boxers. You better, <laughs> you better look fantastic because people are always going to be looking in your living room window. It is the window display. Yeah. It is the window dressing your website is the most important thing because if i say to you sean crawford or jill poliesi or lisa romarin or this new restaurant in new york city what are you going to do you're going to look it up online exactly so the minute somebody hears your name they're going to look you up Mm. so that website has to be fantastic yeah 24 7 365 we are not going to go down the entire marketing road because <laughs> part two, yeah, part, that's two. part two. But anyway, there you have it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot and I'm very inspired. Absolutely. My pleasure.
Thank you so much for checking out today's episode of Shop Talk Radio and joining me as we dive underneath the hood of the creative lifestyle. Again, I am your host, Nick Onkin, and if you enjoyed today's episode, then go over to iTunes and leave us a good review so that we can spread the word and inspire even more people in the world to live inspiration and share their inner creativity. Also, we'd love to see where you're listening to the podcast, so snap a photo on Instagram, hashtag liveinspiration, or tag me at Nick Onkin so that you can inspire other people to listen wherever they are at. But beyond this, check out nickonkinshoptalk.com to read articles on creating the creative lifestyle anywhere from emotional intelligence to any other aspect of creative entrepreneurship. I'll be also posting up editorial content in the form of visual essays that I get to create with my photographic eye and my craft and my career. Uh, But most of all, get to join the underground creative community that we're creating. So thanks again for joining us. Now go share your creativity with the world. Uh